The following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2008 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. Through the prophetic scriptures, God has foretold that during the thousand-year reign of Messiah upon the planet Earth in the future, the nation of Israel will be the spiritual leader of the whole world. But this morning, in order to understand those, what the scriptures say about that future, we have to get some historical background. Interestingly, right after the flood, the Noahic flood, God gave the following commandment to mankind. It's in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That last expression, fill the earth, was God's way of saying, I don't want mankind to stay together in one location. You're to spread about, scatter, and populate the entire earth. Well, when you come to Genesis chapter 11, you find that several generations after God gave that command right after the flood, mankind decided to rebel against that command of God. And so we have this record in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. This is what they said. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They were rebelling against God's command, scatter and fill the earth. They said, we're not going to do that. In order to prevent our scattering to populate the entire earth, we're going to stay right here we're going to make a great name for ourselves by building a great city and a tower that can reach possibly into the heavens as well. Now, Genesis 11 says they did that on the plain of Shinar, which later on was ca uh, ca captured by the Babylonians, became known as Babylonia, and today is the nation of Iraq. That's where this took place. And one of the, the key cities that they ended up building there as well was the city of Ur, U-R. They divided Shinar after a while into two divisions, and one of those divisions was known as Sumer or Sumeria, and one of the key cities in Sumer or Sumeria was the city of Ur, which later on in the Bible calls Ur of the Chaldees. They renamed it that after the Babylonians gained control of that area of the world. Now what's interesting is this. God brought judgment upon their rebellion against this command to spread out and populate the entire earth. And the way God did it was by confusing their language. Up to this point, there was only one universal language throughout all of mankind. But if you read Genesis 11, God says, do you see what they do when they have a common language? If we don't put a stop to this, there's no end of the evil that they can carry out in rebellion against me. So God confused their language and caused them to begin speaking different languages, which thereby forced them to separate from each other because they couldn't understand each other. And they spread out as a result of the face of the earth. And those different languages gave birth to nations, different nations for the first time in world history. All this we find in Genesis chapter 11. But there was something else significant that took place there in the plain of Shinar, and specifically in the area of the Chaldees, uh, sometime after they began to scatter. Even, historic, even secular historians indicate that in the 25th century BC, this is about 2,500 years before Jesus was born into the world, the first false religion devised by mankind after the flood developed there in the city of Ur, in that part 
where they rebelled against God. And uh, what the people of Ur did, they instituted a religion that worshipped a mother goddess, a mother goddess that they called Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R. And they made what today would be called Madonna child images, where the Madonna is this mother goddess, and she held an infant son in her arms called Tammuz, Tammuz. Interestingly, the people of Ur of the Chaldees are the one that invented that first false religion after the flood. Three centuries later, the, uh, in the 21st, 22nd century BC, the Babylonians came in, they conquered that area, and the Babylonians, according to secular historians, adopted that false religion with the, the mother goddess, with the infant in her arms. And archaeologists have uncovered clay tablets of the Babylonians in which they inscribed the prayers that they raised to this mother goddess image with her infant son in, in her arms. And what they would say about her, and I just want to read to you some of the things that they said. They, archaeologists have been able to decipher this and translate it in the English language. The Babylonians called her the virgin, the holy virgin, the virgin mother, goddess of goddesses, and queen of heaven and earth. And then they exclaimed, Ishtar is great. Ishtar is queen. My lady is exalted. My lady is queen. There's none like unto her. They called her shining light of heaven, light of the world, enlightener of all the places where men dwell, who gather together the host of the nations. And they claimed of this goddess... Where you glance, in other words, where you look, the dead come to life, the sick rise and walk, the mind of the diseased is healed when it looks upon your face. And in the Babylonian mythology that they built around this goddess worship, they pictured her with a crown on her head as the queen of heaven and earth, the ruler of heaven and earth. And again, they made their images, their idols, and Madonna with a child in her arms. Now what's interesting is this. That started there in Ur of the Chaldees, back around 2,500 years before Jesus was born in the world. And eventually, that false religion spread out to all the Gentile nations of the world. And historians have traced this. The Egyptians adopted it. The Greeks adopted it. The Phoenicians adopted it. The Romans adopted it. Almost all the ancient Gentile nations of the world adopted this first false religion, and that original false religion became the fountainhead of the development of all the other pagan false religions of the ancient world, of the ancient world. How did God respond to this false religion that was developed and spread among the Gentile nations of the ancient world? Very significant to note, in Genesis chapter 11, the very chapter that talks about the Tower of Babel, mankind rebelled against God, etc. In that same chapter, God, through the author Moses, brought down the line of human descent to one man, a man by the name of Abram, later on called Abraham. Same chapter in which God earlier records this rebellion against God draws down the human line of descent to single in one man by the name of Abram. 
And uh, it's interesting. Now, that's in chapter 11. But notice in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is what God said. Now, the Lord said unto Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. What was God saying here? What he's saying is this. In light of how all the Gentile nations have gone apostate, rejecting the worship of the true and the living God, the creator of the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, and that they, those Gentile nations have gone apostate, they developed false religions in rejection of me and rebelling against me, God was thereby saying to Abraham, I have intended to bring into existence a new nation, a new nation that's going to be different from these Gentile nations that have gone off into apostasy and rebellion against me. And he says here of Abram, from your line of descent, I'm going to bring into existence a great nation, not necessarily great in size, but great in significance because of what God intended that nation to play a key role in God fulfilling his plan and purpose for world history and for mankind. Now, what's interesting is, God declared later on, you can read this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, where God declared that he's the one who created Israel. He formed Israel. He made Israel. Now, you find the pronoun him there, but in the context, he's using the word him to refer to the nation of Israel. And so God was declaring here, years after he did it, he said, I'm the one who created this new nation. I'm the one who formed this new nation. I'm the one who made this new nation. And we're going to see that he then begins spelling out why he brought this new nation into existence in light of the way all the other nations had gone in rebellion against him into false worship against the true and the living God. Now, What's interesting is this. If you were to look at Genesis 15, where God establishes the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, he says to Abraham in verses 13 through 14, several generations after you, your descendants, this new nation I'm going to bring into existence, are going to get down into the land of Egypt. And they will serve the Egyptians for about 400 years. But then I'm going to bring them out of the land of Egypt and bring them to this land that I promised to give to you and your descendants, the biological descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, forever for ownership. God foretold ahead of time he was going to allow this to happen to the Jews. They'd get down into Egypt, they'd be enslaved by the Egyptians for about 400 years, and then afterward he'd bring them out of the land of Egypt to the land that he promised to give to them forever as an everlasting possession. That says to me that God allowed the Jews to go down to Egypt for purposes. God was using their Egyptian experience to prepare them for the purpose he was bringing them into existence as a nation. And as I've reflected on this, I'm convinced God allowed them down there and go through a terrible time of testing for three purposes, three things God wanted to accomplish with that nation. 
if it's going to fulfill his purpose for that nation in contrast with the Gentile pagan nations of the world. The first reason he had Israel experience that time in Egypt was this. For that nation to experience firsthand through slavery the brutal perverted practices of people who worship false man-made images or gods. Let me state that again. I take one of the reasons God allowed Israel down there was for Israel to experience firsthand through slavery the brutal, perverted practices of people who worship false man-made gods. Second reason God allowed them to be down there during that time was to demonstrate the futility, to demonstrate the futility of worshiping false man-made idols or gods. You see, the ten plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt to force Pharaoh to let his people Israel go free from their bodies and slavery, every one of those ten plagues was directed against a false God that the Egyptians worshipped, every one of them. So God uniquely designed those ten supernatural plagues to demonstrate to the people of Israel, notice those gods Egypt worship, they can't respond, react in any way, shape, or form to what I'm doing in their nation which was God's way of trying to drive home to the Jews, look, these false religions, pagan idolatrous idols that the Gentiles have worshipped, they are contrary to reality. They are not real gods that exist. They're purely man-made. They can't see things. They can't hear things. They can't say things. They can't do anything. They can't stop me from breaking the back of Pharaoh's rebellion against me and the people of Egypt until they allow you to go free from your slavery there in the land of Egypt. I think if this was God's way of demonstrating to, to the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, look these false gods that the Gentiles worship. They're contrary to reality. There are no gods like that that truly exist. Again, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't say anything, they can't do anything. By contrast... Here's the third reason God allowed them to go through this experience in Egypt, to prove, irrevocably, to prove to the people of Israel the existence of one true and living God, Yahweh, the God who had already appointed his man-made deliverer of the Jews out of Egypt, their bondage there, the man Moses. God, through decimating the nation of Egypt, was demonstrated there is a true and a living God. And he's the one who is bringing you out of Egypt and entering into a unique relationship with you that he doesn't give to any other nation here upon planet Earth. I take it these three things that God allowed the people of Israel to experience there were God's way of preparing his purpose for this new nation he was bringing into existence, namely the nation of Israel. Now, in light of all that, I want to focus the rest of our time this morning to look at six purposes that God had for the nation of Israel and bring it into existence. Six purposes that God had for the nation of Israel and bring it into existence. The first purpose was this. In order for God to have a permanent, unique relationship with that nation, or we could say the reverse, in order for the nation to have 
a permanent, unique relationship with God. Interestingly, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Moses said this to the people of Israel, The Lord, literally Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. This was Moses' way of saying, God has brought you into existence as a nation in order for you to have a, a unique relationship with him that he doesn't give to any other nation upon planet earth. Again, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. And it's important to note, the scriptures make it very clear, this was not a temporary unique relationship between God and the nation of Israel. David, writing under the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit several centuries later, penned these words in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 24. 2 Samuel 7, 24, where David is saying to God, you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. You have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. David's saying this unique relationship God established with the nation of Israel that he doesn't give to any other nation. It's permanent. It's forever between God and the nation of Israel. Now notice, God entered in this unique relationship with all the Jews, saved and unsaved alike, the whole nation, back there in Old Testament times. And he's saying that he has allowed that nation, one of his purposes of that nation is for it to have a unique relationship with him forever that he doesn't give to any other nation in all of world history here upon planet Earth. And in line with this, repeatedly, as I researched this, I was overwhelmed by how many times God said to the people of Israel, I am the Lord who brought you out of your slavery from Egypt for this purpose, to be your God, to be your God in essence, for you to be my people. For example, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. This is what it says. I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Here's one of the purposes. I'm bringing you out of your slavery from Egypt. For me alone to be your God. I'm to be your only God because I'm the only one who exists. And I'm bringing you out of Egypt to demonstrate that. And my purpose for bringing you out there is for me to be your God. And for you to avoid all these false pagan gods that the Gentile nations have gone to. He said it again in Leviticus 22, verse 33. Leviticus 25, verse 38. Leviticus 26, verse 45. Numbers chapter 15, verse 41. And other times in the Old Testament, he brought them out of Egypt to be their God to have a unique relationship with him that he didn't give to any other nation back there in ancient times. That was his first purpose for the nation of Israel. For them to have this unique, permanent relationship with God that he wouldn't give to any other nation. Second purpose God had to bring them into existence is to be a holy nation. To be a holy nation. When the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai, and God, through Moses, gave them the Mosaic Law. This is what he said to them in Ezekiel chapter 19, not Ezekiel, Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. You shall be to me a holy nation. 
That's my purpose for you, to be a holy nation. Interestingly, later on, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, said to the people of Israel, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Now, the, word, the root meaning of the word holy in the Bible means divided, divided. To be holy means to be divided from other persons and things in the sense that you're different, you're distinct, maybe unique in contrast with other persons and things. And so when God said to Israel, here's one of my purposes for you, that you be a holy nation to me. That's his way of saying, I want you to be different from all these Gentile nations. Look at what they've done. They've rebelled against me. They've rejected me as the true and the living God. I intend you as a nation to be different from those people. That I alone will be your God. And you will be the nation who will acknowledge the existence of the true and the living God. And who want this unique relationship with me, the true and the living God. And uh, in light of that, God told them, the Gentile nations worship many gods. You're to be different. You are to worship exclusively one God, namely Yahweh, the creator of the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that's in them whatsoever. And so in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, God said this to the people of Israel, you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. One Old Testament scholar, I researched on this, uh, in light of these statements by God, said this, quote, it is Yahweh's will, will to be the only God for Israel, and he's not disposed to share his claim for worship and love with any other divine power. What he's saying is, God was saying to the people of Israel, I'm the only God that you as a nation are to worship, exclusively me. You're to be different from the other nations. They worship all these other gods who are false and are really contrary to reality. You're to be a different nation from them. You're to worship only one God, the true and the living God, Yahweh, the one who brought you out of your slavery and, and bondage from Egypt through his supernatural power that he demonstrated very clearly, that he is that powerful God who actually exists and can deal effectively with rulers of nations and, and with nations as such and all the rest to carry out his plan and purpose of world history. Then there's a third purpose, according to the scriptures, for which God brought the nation of Israel into existence. And that is to be God's servant. To be God's servant. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. You, Israel, are my servant. You, Israel, are my servant. Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 55. This is what God said. The children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And again, Isaiah 43, verse 10. Isaiah 44, verses 1, 2, and 21. Isaiah 45, verse 4. Isaiah 48, verse 20. God kept saying, Israel, you're my servant. You're my servant. You're my servant. Even the Virgin Mary... If you read Luke chapter 1, verse 54, one of the statements in her Magnificat, 
After God had revealed to the angel Gabriel she was God's chosen vessel through whom the Messiah would be born in the world, she called Israel God's servant. I mean, this is centuries later after God made Israel his servant. As a, a faithful Jewess who believed the true and the living God, she had that embedded in her thinking. Israel was appointed by God, raised up by God, to be God's unique servant. Now notice the contrast. For over 400 years, they were forced into slavery to be the servants of the people of Egypt. So for 400 years through slavery, they were forced to be the servants of the Egyptians for many, many years. In fact, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, God reminded this. He says, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. But he's saying, I delivered you from that slavery, that bondage, serving these pagan Gentile people, the Egyptians. I brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you can be my servant and serve me, the true and and the living God. Uh, Here's what another uh, scholar of the scriptures made this statement significantly. The principle that no man can serve two masters embraces not merely the moment of turning to the deity to worship. In other words, you're not only serving the true and the living God just in the times you worship him, but for the whole of life. No man can serve two masters, meaning if you're going to serve the right master, the true and the living God, that demands your whole life to be dedicated to serving that true and the living God. Not just when you worship him, but your whole life is to be committed to serving him. And so this uh, Bible scholar went on to say, there's no other servant status that's allowable or conceivable if you're going to be the servant of the true and the living God. Yahweh demands the total obedience of Israel, his servant. And Israel owes total allegiance to this one Lord. For the will of Yahweh is oriented to Israel. He oriented his whole will to this one nation in concert other nations and say that this nation is uniquely to be my servant before all the other nations here upon planet Earth, upon planet Earth. A fourth purpose for which God brought the nation of Israel into existence is this, to be God's witnesses to be God's witnesses. God chose the people of Israel to continually witness to all the pagan Gentile nations of the world the fact that Yahweh, the God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, is the only God who truly exists. He brought Israel into existence to be that kind of a witness to all the pagan Gentile nations of the world. The fact that Yahweh, the God who brought them from their bondage and slavery out of Egypt, is the only true God who exists. And therefore, to testify to the Gentiles, you should be worshiping him as well, as we are to be worshiping him as his his unique people. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12. We read this. God speaking, you are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, 
And besides me, there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, and saved, I have proclaimed. There was no foreign God among you. In other words, you weren't worshiping foreign gods when I brought you into existence. There was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Then in Isaiah 48, verse 8, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. I don't know any other God except me. Driving home again to Israel, you're to be my witness to the rest of the world, to all these pagan Gentile nations. There's only one true living God. All the gods you people are worshiping are false, they're not existent, purely man-made, they can't do a thing. There's only one true and the living God who sees all, who's all-powerful, and can exercise his will upon the people of the nations of the world. God intended the nation of Israel in ancient times to be that kind of a witness to the rest of the people of the world. Now, interestingly, the word that's translated witness in these statements has the root meaning of repetition or doing something over again and again and again. Repetition. And the idea is that God intended the nation of Israel to be repeatedly saying and demonstrated to the Gentile nation of the world, there's only one true and the living God. And to repeat that over and over again, to drive home very strongly what I'm saying to you is the absolute truth. I'm saying it over and over again because this is the absolute truth and I want to wake you up that this is the absolute truth. There's only one true God. You should be rejecting your false pagan gods that you've been worshiping for centuries and turn to the true living God. The only one, Yahweh, the one that brought us as a nation out of bondage and slavery there in, in the land of Egypt. Uh, one of the, another Old Testament scholar said, quote, a witness is a person who has firsthand knowledge of an event or one who can testify on the basis of a report which he has heard. What he's saying is, if you actually witnessed an event taking place, you've got a responsibility to tell that to other people. This actually happened because I saw it with my own eyes taking place. And God's saying that to the generation of Jews who are living in slavery in Egypt, but were living when God brought them out of that bondage, when he parred the waters of the Red Sea miraculously so that they could escape the clutches of Pharaoh who was pursuing them with his chariot force, and then God dealing with them, caring for them for 40 years in the wilderness. And those who saw the tremendous display of God's omnipotent power when he came down to the top of Mount Sinai to give them the law with fire and smoke coming out of that mountain and the whole mountain shaking all the rest. He's saying, those of you who are living, those generations and witnessed those things with your own eyes, you've got a God-given responsibility to keep sharing that with the Gentiles of the world. This is the proof there's only one true and the living God. But then what about those who were later generations of Jews? He's saying they've got to witness on the basis of what their ancestors who did see these things actually taking place told them. And so in light of this, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 through 24, Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 through 24, God said to the Jews who witnessed these supernatural things God did for them, bringing them out of their slavery in Egypt and parting the waters of the Red Sea, he said to them, you remember, you keep remembering those things you witness with your eyes. But then he says, 
you are to teach your children and your grandchildren what these things you witness so that they can carry on that continuing witness to the pagan Gentile nations of the world. There's one true and the living God who did this for the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. This is what God said to them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I've done in Egypt, my signs which I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. You know, in contrast with these pagan gods that are man-made, that the Gentiles worship. Then with regard to the night of Passover, you know, the, the final climax in God breaking the will of Pharaoh and bringing the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt in freedom from slavery, he said at the night of Passover, quote, it's a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. He says that in Exodus 12, verses 41 to 42. What he's saying is the Jews, keep reminding your offspring, your children, your grandchildren, of the mighty things I did for you as a nation so that they can continue the witness and testimony to the pagan, unbelieving people of the world. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. God said, only take heed to yourself. Diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren." Now, interestingly, in Isaiah 43, verses 8 through 13, Isaiah 43, verses 8 through 13, God pointed out that those who worship idols, those who worship false gods, are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, regard the existence of the only true God. Again, those who worship false gods or idols are spiritually blind and they are spiritually deaf, regard the existence of the only true God. And therefore, God intended Israel to open the eyes and ears of the spiritually blind and deaf Gentile nations to the reality of God's existence. That's what he's saying. These Gentiles who worship these false gods, they're spiritually blind, spiritually deaf to the reality of the true and the living God. But you as a nation know different because of what I've done for you. And therefore, I intend you, Israel, to be a testimony with these Gentiles to open their spiritual eyes and their spiritual hearing to finally grasp the truth. There's only one true and the living God. Yahweh, who brought the people of Israel out of their slavery and bondage there in, in the land of Egypt. Now, the next, this is the fifth purpose of God for the nation of Israel bringing into existence is for his glory, for God's glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7, God said, I created him for my glory, referring to Israel. I created Israel for my glory. Isaiah 43, verse 23, for the Lord has glorified himself in Israel. Isaiah 46, verse 13, for Israel my glory. He calls Israel my glory. The word glory refers to what is impressive or influential concerning a person or a thing. And so God's saying, I brought this nation to existence for the purpose of impressing the world with the fact that there's only one true and living God, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the one that brought the nation of Israel to existence, to impress the rest of the world with that fact. There's only one true and the living God. 
And so, to so impress the world with that fact that that true and living God can have life-changing influence in the hearts and lives of millions of people all over planet Earth among all the pagan Gentiles. He brought Israel into existence for that purpose. How does God do that? Well, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, one of the ways God does that is through his historic dealings with the nation of Israel. You look at Deuteronomy 28, Moses, by revelation of God, is spelling out how God would deal historically with this nation. From Moses' time, back around the 1400s B.C., right up to the coming of the Messiah to planet Earth to establish God's kingdom rule here upon planet Earth. In verses 1 through 14 of Deuteronomy 28, God through Moses said to the people of Israel, if you will listen to and obey my commandments I've given to you, in other words, my word I've given to you, I will bless you more than any other nation upon planet Earth. You'll always be the head nation, you'll never be the tail nation. But then beginning with verse 15, going to the end of chapter 28, God says, but Israel... If you do not listen to and obey my commandments, my word I've given to you, I will curse you as a nation. I'll scatter you among the Gentile nations. And while you're there, you'll have no ease of your foot. You won't be able to establish your roots permanently. You have to keep wandering from one nation to the other. And it'll get so terrible, you will despair for life itself. In the morning, you won't know if you'll be alive that night because of the way the Gentiles will deal with you in the nations where you're scattered. When night comes, if you're alive, you won't know if you'll be alive the next morning. God's saying, Israel, I'm going to deal with you historically in this twofold way. Why will I bless you more than any other nation when you listen to and obey my word? Well, he told them why. So that the Gentiles, so the Gentiles will become aware of the fact that you're related to me. He's saying, when I bless you more than any other nation because you've obeyed me, my word, that's going to impress the Gentiles with the fact that these people belong to a God who will bless those people who listen to and obey God's word he's given to mankind. Why would he curse Israel when they would disobey God? In verse 37 of Deuteronomy 28, he said, you'll be a horror and you'll be almost like a, an object lesson to the nations of the world. When they see you being blessed more than they are, that's going to arouse their curiosity and investigate why is this nation being blessed more than we are they'll discover it's because you're related to the only true and the living God, and they are not. But on the other hand, when you're being cursed so severely, and they inquire why, they'll discover it's because you as my people have rebelled against me, like they rebelled against me, their ancestors in past history. You've rejected my revelation, my word I've given to you. And God's saying through that twofold way he'd deal historically with the nation of Israel, he'd use them as an object lesson to all the Gentile nations of the world, to impress the rest of the world that the true and the living God, Israel's God, is the kind of God who will bless those people who listen to and obey his word. He's also the kind of God who will curse, vex, and frustrate those people who will not listen to and obey his word. And by the way, with this we have to cut it off. We'll see the sixth reason God brought into existence tomorrow morning, Lord willing. It's no mistake, therefore, that God placed that nation in the most strategic geographical location upon the face of the earth in ancient times. Even the Gentiles called that area the land that God gave to Israel, the navel of the earth, the center of the earth. It was the crossroads of Africa, Asia, and Europe, three great continents upon planet earth. And if you lived in Africa back in, in Bible times and you wanted to travel up to Europe or Asia by land, not by boat, you had to travel right through the land of Israel. 
Or if you were in Asia and Europe, you wanted to travel down to the continent of Africa by land, you had to travel right down through the land of Israel. And God purposely put them that way so as Gentiles are going through, they could see, is this nation being blessed more than we are? Or are they being cursed more than we are? Which arouse their curiosity. And so God says through this twofold way I deal with you, I'll impress the rest of the world of my existence and my greatness and that I'm the kind of God who will bless those people who honor me, worship me, obey my word that I've given to mankind. But I'm also the kind of God who will curse, vex, and trust those people who will reject me as the true and the living God and who will reject my revelation I've given to mankind. And the greatest display of his glory through that nation is yet to come in conjunction with the future tribulation period and the second coming of the Lord Jesus back to planet Earth to set up God's kingdom rule here upon this planet. 